Vivictus. <laughs> okay, so the, the Wikipedia MTG page for Vivictus Osmati is quite humorous. The very first line is, Vivictus Osmati was a big, ugly elder dragon, comma, nothing. That's it. It's not even a period. Well, just and, was a and, big, and, ugly elder dragon. And Vivictus is jund, so he doesn't care. Welcome to the EDH RecCast, brought to you by the best deck building site on the web for the commander format, EDH Rec. My name is Joey Schultz, and I'm joined today by my lovely co-hosts. First up, the speedster, whose article series takes you from 60 to 100, it's Matt Morgan. Getting cuckoo for co- for corsets. Next, the man whose article series reminds you to look in the margins, Dana Roach. I just want to once again say I really appreciate being called a lovely person. Always, Dana. And I'm Joey Schultz, the author of the Commander Showdown series. All these articles and more can be found at edhrec.com, along with some awesome featured community content such as other Commander podcasts and gameplay videos. EDHREC itself is a fantastic deck-building resource that compiles data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new Commander decks. And here on the EDHREC cast, we're going to give all that data a little more context. What's our topic this week, fellas? Dragons! <laughs> <laughs> The there cor- are the definitely corset. a lot of dragons. The core set is yeah. all about dragons. Yep, we're going to be looking at core set 2019. It seems that we can't go three episodes without a new set coming out, so we're doing another set review this time for core set 2019, which, as Matt mentioned, is full of a whole lot of dragons. Before we get started, though, I've got a story for you guys, because I just played a game with my family this weekend, and boy howdy was it a doozy. So my entire family does play the game Magic, everyone including my stepdad, my friends from back home, my brothers, and my mom, actually. And she was crushing us one game with her Dragonlord Ojutai deck, speaking of dragons. She commander damaged me out of the game, she commander damaged my brother out of the game, she commander damaged my stepdad out of the game, and then it was just her versus one of my childhood friends, Paul. Paul, earlier in the game... The reason that he was safe in the first place was because he'd ripped a mind stylation, and from it, he had taken my mother's Blazing Archon, which prevents anyone from being able to attack you. So finally, when it's just my mom versus Paul, she's ready to crush him. She's already gotten in a little bit of damage or something. She just needs one removal spell for her to like fly in and then just be able to tear him apart. But then the following sequence happens. She attempts to pongify the Blazing Archon to destroy it. Paul gets the Mind Stylation trigger. He gets a counterspell. Counters the Pongify. It's very upsetting. My mom is top-decking at this point, so she doesn't actually have another answer. Unfortunately, she has to pass. Paul does his turn. Doesn't quite matter. I think he's trying to mill her out at this point. Something I can't remember, because what I do remember is the next turn, my mom gets a Reality Shift, which she attempts to use on the Blazing Archon. Mind Stylation trigger. Dissipate. Counters the spell. Next try, she gets a Path to Exile. She attempts to cast that... Mind's dilation trigger, dissolve. Oh, wow. <laughs> why, why is your mom so bad at magic? I don't know why her deck was just betraying her. She was, she was so flustered. It did not stop there. It happened a fourth time. She drew a curse of the swine, attempted to use it on his entire board, swan song. Never in the history of ever has that happened four times in a row. But the the top eight cards of her deck from that point were removal spell, counterspell, removal spell, counterspell, removal spell, counterspell. It was ridiculous. I'm never going to forget that game. Nice. I like that. Against Dragonlord Ojatai, that was? That was Commander? Yeah. And it's it's no joke. She'll beat you with that deck faster than you can take Commander damage. But when your own deck is working against you, I mean, what can you do? Huh. 
Right. I'm just jealous you can get your whole family to play magic. Like, I don't think I don't think anybody else in my family can sit still long enough. <laughs> I think my parents realized at one point that if they wanted to talk to any of us kids, they'd have to learn the crazy games that we play. And that's why we're all going to be great parents, because, you know, we already play the crazy <laughs> games. <laughs> yeah, it'll be our kids who realize that if they want to have, have any conversations with us, they've got to learn to play our games. I'm fine with that. Yeah, no, I'm totally okay with that. I'm, al- I'm already doing that, so... Alrighty guys, one last thing before we get on to the set review, we're going to take a look back at the battle bond bet that we made. You may recall that Matt wanted Team Najila, I wanted Team Partner Planeswalkers, and Dana had Team Peer and Toothy, but it didn't go well for us. Matt won another bet, and I'm really it sad. Went per- it, it went perfect for us. <laughs> the right person won again. Perfect for you. Yeah, I mean, the, the amount of people I've seen talking both in person and online about Najila just absolutely dwarfs the conversations about the, any other commander or partner pair out of that set. Yeah, it's... Uh, I'm really sad. Matt, why are you so good at this? I mean, I just know I'm a man of the people, and I know what people want. I mean, he's... Yeah. So, if you think about it, he was bound to be good at something, eventually. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I have to shoot, like, probably, like, five for five these next set reviews just to make sure that Jason doesn't, like, permanently get rid of me. It's just like, hey, you're fired you know, for 20 minutes and okay, write your next article. So yeah, he was really yeah. bummed. Just out a lot of pressure. He was, he was really upset that you weren't in Vegas cause he already had a hole dug out in the desert. <laughs> <laughs> he was just like all the extra work he did digging that hole. He was just, he was upset. I mean, he probably worked up a pretty good sweat. Did, and then, yeah. I mean, well, Jason, I'm sorry. You know, I, I didn't want him to let you down, but, uh, Matt, the perennially fired, really good guesser. Like, you were you were so good at it. I don't even want to get into the numbers. You demolished us with that bet. So we'll get a Najila coming your way. But for this next bet, I promise we're going to win it. Although then again, we might all be making the same call. We'll get to that in just a second. How about we start off with the actual set review? Dana, do you want to read our first commander for us? Uh, absolutely. The first commander, alphabetically and in my heart, would be Arcades the Strategist, who is one in band, so four mana total, for a legendary creature, Elder Dragon. He has flying and vigilance, and whenever a creature with Defender enters the battlefield under your control, you draw a card. Additionally, each creature you control with Defender assigns combat damage equal to its toughness rather than its power, and it can attack as though it did not have Defender. I like big butts, and I cannot lie, you other brothers can't deny... We've got another type of Doran dragon here. Yeah, Doran in band, and it actually works with walls without you having to manipulate it, you know, and cast animate wall or whatever. And it only affects your stuff. Like, Doran, you know, sometimes could hurt you a little bit if somebody else's big-butted creature was in play and it got to swing for damage based on toughness, but Arcades is just your stuff. That is a really interesting distinction. Most often when I've been playing against Doran, actually, a buddy of mine does have a Doran deck, and I find that it messes with my math a little bit. Whenever I try to go into combat, I frequently have creatures that have higher power than toughness, so I wonder if that distinction will end up being a really important piece for Arcades. Well, something I just thought of, actually, just reading through the card again, because in my mind I was thinking, oh yeah, Arcades has that Doran ability, so Arcades you know, himself is a 5-5, not so much because Arcades reads each creature you control with Defender assigns combat damage. Right. Arcades doesn't have Defender himself, so he's only a three-five, not a five-five, like a lot of people I've seen 
throwing around. I, I just now realized that. So uh, I still think he's sweet. I still think Arcadius is probably the most unique of the Elder Dragons, but probably something you want to keep in mind. He, he's definitely yeah. unique, but I think also he probably dictates your build in a way that every other dragon doesn't. So he's unique in his ability set, but the deck you build around him will probably very closely mirror every Arcades deck we see in EDH track. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. Matt has made an observation like that before, where you'll have a deck that is full of a lot of 75%, 85% cards popularity. The decks will tend to look fairly similar to towards other decks with the same commander, as opposed to something like Atraxa, which tends to be a little more flexible with the type of deck strategies that you can build. Yeah, the deck definitely builds itself. Just, I mean, with when you have a keyword like Defender on there, twice even, not just the uh, the draw card, but then with the, the damage clause... Yeah, it kind of makes a narrow and, and self-building deck. You're also really yeah. susceptible to your commander being stolen or just, you know, kept off the field. Like, we mentioned this talking about Nagila, but one of the things we all liked about Nagila was the fact that, you know, even if your commander isn't out, swinging with officially costed warriors who probably have an ability stapled on is a pretty useful thing just in general. In this case, when your commander isn't in play, you've just got a bunch of walls. So you are really, really reliant on your commander being out to, to probably do almost anything. Yeah, and it's that I think while that is certainly a liability for Arcades, Arcades is clearly going to be a very defensive deck. You literally have a wall protecting you. All of your creatures will be huge and impenetrable. And then as long as you keep Arcades itself protected with i mean you've got blue in there counter magic you've got green in there heroic intervention as long as you keep that protected i feel like the deck's going to be putting in a whole lot of work it'll for sure be effective and, yeah. and not it'll to be mention fun. you get to draw cards for every defender you play so you'll always have a full grip yeah i want to mm-hmm. play against the deck i, like, I want to see it I, looking at the rest of them this is the deck i want to just see it in action more than any of the other ones because i think it's seeing a bunch of different weird walls is going to be fun at least you know a couple times yeah, I, I think the, the nice thing that it has going for it that will make people want to build decks is it's definitely the most unique feeling Bant deck. Everything, and just, and I know Dana, you and I had talked a little bit, you know, our Slack channel. Oh, there's a lot of Bant commanders out there, but all of them kind of feel ho-hum. Nothing really excites you or I, at least. And, yeah, and I know sure. a lot of people had kind of felt the same way. Arcades, like, does something very unique. Uh, I know Mason in our Slack channel in that same conversation he was very excited. Within 10 minutes of Arcades being spoiled, he's like, I'm building this deck. So I think there's going to be a lot of people that have that reaction. Just says, man, this is something we haven't seen before. It's a compelling Bant commander, and I think people will, will want to play it. Yeah, definitely. A lot of cool stuff happening with Arcades. But we've got some other Elder Dragons to discuss, so let's move on to the next one. This next one is also four mana, but it's one and Grixis. This is Nicol Bolas the Ravager. He's a four mana, four four of the flying, and when he enters the battlefield, each opponent discards a card. Not terribly exciting, maybe, although it is kind of nice to have a four mana flying creature. You know, that's nothing to sneeze at. But he doesn't stop there. In fact, he really doesn't stop there. He gets really interesting from here. After that, you can pay seven mana for blue, black, and red, exile Nicol Bolas the Ravager, then return him to the battlefield transformed under his owner's control. You can only activate that ability as a sorcery, but when he transforms, he becomes Nicol Bolas the Arisen, a planeswalker. So you've got a creature slash planeswalker, and I really, before we even get to the actual, you know, 
the, the planeswalker part of him, I do like that flexibility a lot. It's a really neat story. We've got another sort of like those Origins flipwalkers where you're finding out the story of this commander. But I like that there's still versatility where he can potentially end someone with commander damage or in maybe a longer game he can also go into the planeswalker value town. I like that flexibility a lot. Still, let's get on to what he actually does as a planeswalker. He has seven loyalty, which is ridiculous, but his plus two is draw two cards. Awesome. He's got a minus three. He does 10 damage to a creature or planeswalker, which is insane. A minus four to put target creature or planeswalker card from a graveyard onto the battlefield under your control. I'm a necromancer. Love me some of that. And for minus 12, the ultimate is exile all but the bottom card of target player's library. That's a lot. There's a whole lot happening with Nicol Bolas. What do you guys think? I think there's a lot going on, like you said. Yeah, I mean, the front half, the 4-4 four, four creature for 4 that you know makes each opponent discard a card. Like Even if you never flip him, if you're just running him in a deck as maybe a hand destruction commander where you've got Blink Effects and you know Conjurer's Closet, Pan Harmonicon or something, like you can pretty easily, after casting him, just empty everyone's hand out if you've got a few tricks in play without even ever having to worry about flipping him. And then if you do decide to flip him, then you can just start drawing cards off his, his plus two, even further separating yourself from everyone else. I don't know if he necessarily dictates a particular deck beyond that, but he is, I think, going to be a very effective commander. For sure. And if nothing else, I mean, a Nicol Bolas flavor deck. We have had a previous iteration of Nicol Bolas in the past, but personally, I think that this one will eclipse that one's popularity. I, I think so, too. I think there's enough Grixis homers out there that as soon as they saw Nickel Bulls, like, yeah, I'm building this. OK, this is, you know, flavor, uh, something that they just really enjoy. And I mean, that's that's cool. I mean, just like we said, um, Arcades was pretty compelling. I just think Nickel Bolas, the name itself is compelling. And that's probably what Nickel Bolas would want anyways. But uh, yeah, I, I think there's a lot of people out there. And like Dana said, you don't have to flip them to be an effective commander, like a four, four for four. I mean, granted, Grixis colors don't ramp terribly great, but uh, I mean, I think there's enough going on there on both sides that, uh, yeah, I think it's very interesting. I think it'll be pretty popular. Yeah, well, and you mentioned Grixis colors. Maybe they can struggle with ramping up a whole lot, but that's kind of why I think this new Nickel Bolas might be more popular than the old one. The old Nickel Bolas is the 8-mana version for a 7-7, seven, seven, and his ability is powerful. He When he hits people, he makes them discard their hands. But 8 mana, that's a lot. And beyond that, to keep Nicol Bolas alive, the older version, you actually have to pay 3 mana at the beginning of each of your upkeeps as well. That's just a really hefty investment. Yeah, unless you're just playing the old Bolas because you want to, you know, because you're insistent on playing the old Bolas, I mean, I think any Bolas-themed deck is just going to flat out be better with this new one at the head of it. Yeah. That, I mean, so even while I can maybe criticize the old Nicol Bolas, which, you know, maybe I shouldn't do, Nicol Bolas may come and smite me, so I should probably <laughs> shush my mouth here, but even if I can criticize the old Nicol Bolas card as being a bit expensive, I, sh I do also kind of want to note that this new Nicol Bolas, I mean, it's a 4-mana four 4-4, four, which is great, but flipping him costs 7. That means that if you actually want the Planeswalker version, it's a total of at least 11 mana. That's a really hefty investment. I mean, you get some great payoffs, but 11 mana is a whole lot. Yeah, I was, I was just thinking that, actually. You talked about just how powerful the abilities are, but for 11 mana, they better be you know right. pretty game-ending. And, and the, I mean, if you're Grixis and you're trying to flip them on curve, you know, say you drop them on turn four, next turn you play a mana rock, and then turn five, you know, something happens, you can flip them on, you know, turn six. 
you're taking a whole turn off and then like you, you, they can still kill him in response and you've done a whole lot of nothing in your first six turns. But I would say it also isn't a situation where you're getting nothing for that investment along the way. Like, you know, Tower of Calamities or something where it costs four and then you spend eight to deal 12 damage to a creature. You know, that's a 12 men investment to get to that eight damage. You get things along the way here when you cast it for the initial four, you're hitting everyone's hand and then you can swing and get four damage in before you want to flip them as well. That is assuming no one removes them. So like, yes, it's, it's a lot of mana to get him flipped and get that first two card draws or whatever, but you do get an investment along the way. So I think that mitigates that quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really interesting commander and I am excited to see when people put it together, even if all that's going to happen is that people build flavor decks with Nicol Bolas. And for the record, I don't think that that's all that's going to happen with this card because I think it is really cool. But even just a flavor deck, that's a solid enough reason to build this. It definitely looks like an interesting commander. Matt, do you want to read Vevictus Asmati the Dyer for us? Sure. So Vesmictus Asmati is a three and jund color, so black, red, green. For a 6-6 legendary creature, Elder Dragon, uh, Vevictus Asmati has flying. And then it also reads, when Vesmictus Asmati the Dyer attacks for each player, choose target permanent that player controls. That player, or those players, excuse me, sacrifice those permanents. Each player who sacrificed a permanent this way reveals the top card of their library, then puts it onto the battlefield if it's a permanent card. This one's so weird. It is weird. It's very Jund, though. And I, I think if you can get through the wall of text and realize, man, I can blow up everybody's lands, uh, it's kind of fun. Yeah, I, I mean... I do, I've, in, on the one hand, I don't know what to make of Avictus Asmati. I'm kind of like, why is Polymorph happening on a Jund card? But on the other hand, I'm also like, wait, Chaos Warp every time I attack? Which is probably the more correct evaluation is the Chaos Warp side of it. That is actually pretty exciting. You can, every time you attack, get rid of your opponent's best stuff and whatever. Because it does say each player, not just each right. opponent. So you can pick one of your own things that you decide, eh, don't really need this. And then flip something else into play, getting rid of theirs and, you know, maybe rewarding them with nothing off the top of their deck. Like, that's really compelling, actually. Yeah, yeah I mean, let me get rid of this. Let me get rid of the Sapperling token and I'm going to put in an Avenger of Zendikar instead. Oh, darn. Yeah, you're going to trade their, <laughs> their best stuff for presumably something that odds are is worse. And you're going to trade your worst thing for something that hopefully will be better. It's pretty chaotic, though. And I think the amount of things you will need to run in your deck... If you want to try to control that chaos, whether it's on your side or on their side by controlling the top of your library or theirs, I think it's going to be tough to make this work surgically. I think it's just going to be kind of a mess that's going to burn you fairly frequently too, but maybe that's fine. Maybe that's fun too. No, Dana, you just built a Wasitora Nikoru Queen deck, right? I did, yeah. How do you think this compares? That one also can destroy some stuff whenever it attacks. It, it would, and it's much more surgical in that regard because I can pick who I'm going to attack, whoever has something I want to destroy if they have no blockers, whatever. This hits everybody, and granted, you can pick the permanents, but you also pick one of your own. There's going to be times when you, you know, don't have anything you want to have destroyed aside from maybe a land because you don't want to hit anything else. I, I, I just, it's, it's more erratic than I would like. That might not be the case for some people. I'm not saying that that's necessarily a downside, but for me. I would much prefer controlling what's going to happen versus hoping it works out. That's yeah, I'm, I'm just now reading. This is this is not a May ability either, and it's for, for each sure. player. Do this. So yeah, there, there's not a May. Like you, you have to target something of yourself. Correct. I, 
did not realize that and makes a difference. And and you can yeah. work around that. Like you can control that by running, you know, tokens, you know, awakening zones in these colors. So you can have that zero one Eldrazi that you don't mind losing every turn and you can run, you know, scroll rack and divining top to control what's in the top of your library too. Like you can there's definitely ways you can tweak this so it's advantageous to you way more often than it isn't. But that that sounds like a lot of moving pieces to take advantage of this. And you still never know when you're going to hit that person's scary thing and you get something scarier. You know, you turn that 6-6 mm-hmm. six, six, whatever it is into a ginger taxis or something. Like, that happens. Yeah, that that has occurred in a Chaos Warper too. Yeah, for as much as you can manipulate the own, you know, your own library, other players can re- manipulate theirs in response too. So, yeah, you might be trying to get rid of their Gaia's Cradle, but instead they get, you know, a Consecrated Sphinx. And you're like, well... I, that was fun. We tried. Right, <laughs> right, exactly. Right. I attack with my Vivictus Asmati. Your opponent, in response, brainstorms. You should be a little scared. Yeah. Oof. Yeah, they, they, like somebody flips an omniscience because you blew up something of theirs. <laughs> <laughs> even so... That can I even can... happen in Limited. That can happen in Limited in this set, guys. <laughs> oh... All right, I think we got Matt pretty excited. Since you're so excited, Matt, do you also want to tell us about our next legendary Elder Dragon, Chromium? I I, I suppose I can. So this one will calm me down a little bit. It is Esper colors. Um, But Chromium the Mutable, four and Esper, so white, blue, black, for a 7-7 legendary creature, Elder Dragon, uh, with flash, uh, flying, and also this spell can't be countered. Chromium also has the ability, discard a card, until end of turn, Chromium the Mutable becomes a human with base power and toughness of 1-1, one, one, loses all abilities, and gains hexproof. It can't be blocked to this turn. And does he have Rampage oh. too? Is that on there or no? No, <laughs> not, not on Rampage. Okay. Yeah, Banding was close. It is white, but no, no Banding either. Get your head out of the past. These aren't <laughs> the old Elder Dragons. Oh. <laughs> Dana, what do you think of Chromium? I can't make up my mind, which is probably the point. Chromium is definitely a very mysterious thing, so that's kind of why I I can't really evaluate it very well. Well, I mean, he's definitely better than the original one, which was just Rampage 2. I think he's solid. Flash is pretty cool. He can't be countered. He has evasion. You can give him Hexproof by pitching a card, which is real useful. There's a Voltron deck there for sure. I just kept looking at his abilities and wishing he was wishing this was a different dragon that had red if this was red and black if this was like victus maybe with these ability sets so you could play it as your madness commander and be able to pitch cards to give it hexproof then cast them as madness that would be amazing in esper i i there's a reanimator deck there maybe a little bit but yeah i i'm not really sold He's interesting, but like it's this combination of things doesn't speak to me at all. Yeah, it's very weird. It it is weird. I like the Voltron aspect, and I suppose one of the cool things about that last ability, discarding a card and turning it into a one one with no abilities, but it does have hexproof. That is kind of interesting. Just the threat of activation definitely means that your opponents will almost never even try to point removal at Chromium which is, is certainly very valuable. It's almost like it's got Hexproof without actually having to cost you anything. That threat of activation is very real. Still, I keep looking at the mana cost, and I think that seven's kind of a lot, but I, yeah. I don't hate it. I just also don't love it. I, I don't know. I'm very torn. He's also really tough to block with, just because the second you block, if someone casts a removal spell, 
Well, your choice then is either make him hexproof to, to kick the removal spell away, in which case he becomes a 1-1 one, one, and wherever he blocks kills him. So as a blocker, he really doesn't work because if anyone has a spell in hand, he's just going to die. So the hexproof is kind of weird. Like, it's hexproof, but it only really works on offense. Yeah. I kind of so, wish it, instead of hexproof, it was indestructible. But then I think that might be one of Joey's, you know, color pie breaks and uh, in Esper colors. But <laughs> what are you talking about? What gets indestructible? <laughs> yeah, right. plenty of stuff. I know. I know I'm, I'm just teasing. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's weird. And it, I'm, I'm with you guys. It's really hard to get a feel for it. I feel like it's just a bad, or maybe not a bad, but a different Xerthian Channer. Whereas seven mana can be countered as nice flash, so it has kind of a pseudo haste. But uh, yeah. we we sound like we're struggling with Chromium. There might be a deck out there, and I mean, obviously, you should of course play the cards that you want to. But for the purposes of our set review. You know, regarding how it fits into EDH rec, I don't think that we anticipate that this will be a very popular Esper commander. I I, 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 guess not, I, I yeah. will say, I will say, if there's one commander like of the Elder Dragons, or maybe even in the set that's going to surprise us all, I think it will be Chromium because it's so hard to evaluate. I think a lot of people are going to try to build the deck and figure out how to do it and, and try to break the commander. So if there's one that will surprise us, Chromium the Mutable uh, would be my pick. You know, I think that's very fair. So Chromium's got a weird hexproof ability, but so does our next Elder Dragon, and this is the final one, Palladium Moors the Ruiner. She's a 6-mana six 6-6 six, six in Naya colors, with Flying, Vigilance, Trample, and she has hexproof if she hasn't dealt damage yet. Note, this is a mistake that I made when I first read her, if it hasn't dealt damage yet, not this turn, just if it hasn't dealt damage yet. So the first time that you deal damage with Palladium Moors, the hexproof goes away forever. Right. That's very awkward. And I wasn't really able to figure out how I felt about Chromium or about Vivictus, but I can tell you how I feel about Palladium Wars, and I, it's not very charitable. Yeah, in my head, I, was, I had imagined it as dealt damage yet this turn, so you could refresh it every turn. And now that I'm finally realizing that... Yeah. Uh... I mean, <laughs> yeah. there, there's 14 words on her rules text of the card, and 11 of them are almost irrelevant. Like, that hexproof ability is almost irrelevant. It just means you can't kill her, or you can't target her until the first strike, and after that, you can do whatever you want. That, that That's, like, almost a meaningless ability, and that's what, you know, 11 of the 14 words in the card are. Yeah, I, I can see someone probably, you know, building up Palladium Moors. It's got hexproof, so it's safe. So you put a bunch of stuff onto it, and then you can just kill someone in one blow. But in that case, if you're in Naya colors, I guess my instinct would be to go to something like Ural the Mist Stalker, who's got natural hexproof all the time, right. and gets bigger for all of the stuff that you put on it. So, yeah, Palladium Wars is kind of a swing and a miss for me. If you gave me a choice between making her cost one mana less and removing that hexproof ability, I would choose the one mana less. That's how uninspiring that ability is. Mm. Ouch. I think she has great art. I think the card looks awesome. I feel like the, there's something that we're all missing with Palladia too. Like, I don't think she's as has the upside that like Chromium does, but I do think that there's some stuff like you can put like elemental mastery on Palladia and just make a butt ton of tokens. And, you know, kind of like what I did with Valduk where you find some ways to, you know, have your commander that contributes to the game plan and not having it attack. So I think Palladia might be wanting to do something like that. 
I don't I don't dislike that idea. That that's interesting, like putting Dragon Throne of Tarkir on it and Elemental Mastery. Those that's an interesting angle for sure. But then I guess in the way that Dana kinda said, if we were to only use that strategy, then three of the other words in her rules text become irrelevant, the flying, right. the vigilance, and the trample. So it's sort of a trade-off. There's a very there's a lot of division there that I'm I'm not really personally a fan of. But for now, those are the Elder Dragons as we see them. So we talked about the Battle Bond bet that Matt won, and we've also talked about the Dominaria bet that Matt won. For this one, we're <laughs> going to be making another bet, but I have a theory about which of these Elder Dragons we think will become the most popular in the next couple months. So on the count of three, I think we should all name which commander will be the most popular. Now are we going three. on three, or is it three, two, one, go? Oh, we'll call back to our <laughs> first episode. How dare you? Uh... <laughs> so three, two, one. One, Arcades the Walls. <laughs> um, yeah, Arcades for sure. So, yeah, it looks like we might not be having a bet this time, but maybe we'll be having a bet with the actual t- statistics themselves. Who knows, in a couple months for the next review when we get around to it, we could be wrong. Maybe Nicole Bolas will actually end up being more popular than Arcades. Poidia Moores has some like ridiculous ability interaction <laughs> that none of us recognize and blows up EDI track. Yeah, there, there's some card that was printed in Alliance. It's on the reserve right, list. It becomes exactly. $60 because Palladium Ores breaks it. <laughs> Who knows? I mean, I don't see that happening. I think Arcades is such a niche style, that Defender deck. I think people have been waiting on that for a while, so I definitely anticipate a lot of popularity for Arcades. Yeah, yeah agreed. I'm on board with that as well. We've got a handful of other legendary creatures in this set too, though. Since they're monocolored, We've noticed in the past that monocolor decks don't tend to be more popular than multicolored cards, but we'll talk about a handful of these as well. So let's first start off with Psy Master Thopterist. Dana, do you want to read Psy for us? Psy Master Thopterist costs two and a blue for a legendary creature, a human artificer. Whenever you cast an artifact spell, create a 1-1 colorless Thopter token with flying, and you may spend one and a blue to sacrifice two artifacts to draw a card. I really like Psy, but not at the head of the deck. I really like it in the 99, though. That may be a theme we hear repeated throughout this. And that's just <laughs> it, yeah. Yeah, my I, I just did the blue review for EDH Rec for all the cards in the set, and I, I agree with that. I think Psy is interesting, but I don't think he's going to be very good at the head of his own deck. I think he's going to be in a lot of decks next to, like, Padim and some of those other utility artifact spells. Uh, I think he'll be in a lot of those, but I don't think he's going to have a lot of his own decks. Yeah, I, mean, if, yeah if, I do like the ability a lot, though. Getting an extra Thopter every time you cast an artifact spell, that is really cool. Particularly in some commanders like New Joyra, where you know a lot of, there's a lot of eggs builds going on, and people you know cast three or four or five zero or one drop artifacts per turn, and then they're trying to recast them or redo them to draw cards. I mean, Psy, on the field, just is making you free Thopters for doing the thing you're already doing anyway. And that's always really right. useful in Commander getting paid for the thing that you're already going to be doing. And that's what Psy absolutely does. It's very cynic of you. Right, right. Well, and that's why Psy is <laughs> blue. Yeah, I, I think if you are playing an artifact-based deck and you've got blue in it, which most of them do, I, I think Psy probably makes a cut. He's he's great in that deck. I just don't know if he's a better choice than every other mono-blue artifact commander, like whether it's going to be a Brawl or something like... Uh, Arkham Dagson, or uh, what was one from the first conspiracy set? Muzio? Muzio. So, I mean, I wouldn't run him over any of those, but like, if you're playing one of those decks, I think size in it for sure. 
I could see it running him over some of those just for a change in strategy, but my thing is really that as soon as I see him, I would want to put him into a Joyra deck or put him into a Sharoom deck or put him into a Brea deck. Maybe I'm a little too simple-minded there and I'm not thinking enough outside the box, but Sai seems like a really excellent support card, just, just to my evaluation. I think eventually we're going to hit like a critical mass of legendary blue creatures that play a support role in artifact-heavy decks. Like like I said, we have Padim, we have Baral, we have... Muzio, we have uh, the Polymorphous Lady. All those are great, and they're they're super fun cards. They do really well in their role, but like eventually you're going to have all these support cards, but you're not going to have any artifacts to actually be casting with them. Like, yep. what are you going to play, Master Transmuter, or you know one of these utility cards, or are you going to play you know your big fat artifacts that you know will help you win the game? So I think eventually we're going to get so many of these cards that they're going to start like butting each other out. You're going to have to start taking your pick. Yeah, a lot of competition between the non-artifact cards in the artifact deck. That's pretty funny, actually. Let's move on to our next one, and this is a commander that I am actually pretty excited about. That's Goreclaw, the Terror of Calcisma, a 4-mana, four 4-3 four, legendary bear. So right off the bat, we're kind of on a weird foot, because this is a legendary bear, but it's not a 2-2, so it's not an actual bear. All kidding aside, though, the abilities are really cool. Gorklaw says that creature spells you cast with power 4 or greater cost 2 less to cast, and whenever it attacks, each creature you control with power 4 or greater gets plus 1 plus 1 and gains trample until end of turn. You know, that's not terrible, actually. That can save you a whole lot of mana. It really fits right into the teamer strategies. Yeah, I was just thinking Animar loves this card. <laughs> that's for sure. But even at the head of its own deck, I mean, green loves big creatures. Make them all cheaper. Yeah, I think any green stompy deck is going to definitely consider this. It, it's I agree though, like you said, it was a joke, but it is odd that it's a bear given the connotations that we associate with bear in in, in Magic. It could have easily been a beast, and people probably wouldn't have complained. But yeah, it's a it's an interesting card. It's strong enough that you want to consider it for a lot of decks, but I also think it's one of those ones that's maybe on that ragged edge of like not quite being good enough depending on what your deck's trying to do. But it's it's something that I think a lot of decks are going to be running, and it's worth looking at. Yeah, I, I think it could actually surprise us a little bit. Green has some really cool commanders already. My personal favorite is Titania, Projector of Argoth, because I love lands, and I love graveyards, and I love that she does both of those things. But for people who want a really classic green beat-your-face-and-stuff, Goreclaw can do you no wrong, really. I like the flavor text on Goreclaw. You don't want to know how she got that name. Very Gross. fitting for the, the reverse bear punch, whatever those fight cards are that all had people punching bears, and this is the card where the bear punched back. <laughs> it's worth noting i mean i i could see a lot of people building a flavor deck around you know just people punching other things oh for sure definitely so this next commander i'm not i mean i am a necromancer but i don't like it very much myself but matt i think you're pretty interested in isareth the awakener yeah so isareth the awakener is a one and two black for a three three legendary human wizard with death touch and reads Whenever Isareth the Awakener attacks, you may pay X. When you do, uh, return target creature card with converted cost X from your graveyard to the battlefield with a corpse counter on it. If that creature would leave the battlefield, exile it instead of putting it anywhere else. I am actually really intrigued by this. I know one of our guests that we had on, Dean Goody, he and I kind of butted heads about Whisper. And the way I, I kind of thought Whisper was a bad health care, caretaker, he was really big on Whisper. I'm actually, I, I really like Isareth as much as he liked Whisper as kind of a reanimator, 
getting things on the battlefield. I don't like that Isareth has to attack, but having Death Touch will kind of d- discourage some blockers. Um, but I am really interested just in, in how you can maneuver it. I I like what you're saying, but my problem, just as a necromancer myself, as a person who likes reanimating creatures out of graveyards, the thing that I love so much about reanimating is that it's really, really cheap to do. I like you know, reanimating for one mana, or animate dead for two, or necromancy for three mana, or res the dark realms for nine, but that gets everything. Like, I like saving mana on my reanimation spells, and with Isareth, not only do you have to attack, but it also can only be creatures from your own graveyard, and you have to pay the full retail for them. I'm just, it's kind of off for me. I don't know. Yeah, being limited to your own graveyard sucks. The only thing I'll say about that that. is, I remember when Alesha came out, and kind of having that exact same conversation you just had, Joey, where I'm like, oh... Yeah, she's interesting, but she can only bring back small creatures, and she has to attack, and, you know, and Alesha's really, really strong. So, like, I mean, this is essentially a mono-black Alesha for the most part. Granted, Alesha gives you access to two additional colors, so that maybe makes Alesha better, but I, I, I don't think this is maybe as bad as you think, but it's also, like, the things she does, Chainer just does way better, and also mono-black, so like, I, I, I then think, well, if you're going to run this... You know, a trainer costs a buck to buy, too. It doesn't require any... The deck's going to function essentially the same way, so you're just kind of running bad chainer. Mm, I, I like that evaluation as well. Yeah. I just now realized, looking at the art a little bit more, that Isareth is not actually wearing a hat. That is a bird. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's it's the Johnny Depp um, bird hat from Lone Ranger. Oh, come on. We don't talk about that movie. <laughs> okay. To clear that image from my mind, let's move on to Lathless the Dragon Queen. Dana, tell us all about Lathless. Lathless the Dragon Queen, four and two red, six total, for legendary creature dragon. Lathless has flying, like you'd expect, and whenever another non-token dragon enters the battlefield under your control, create a 5-5 red dragon creature token with flying. You can also spend one in a red, and this is not a tap ability, so you can do it as much as you want to. Dragons you control get plus one, plus zero until the end of turn. She's 6-6. Six, six. That is a powerful card. I'm sure that everyone's mind immediately went to the Ur-Dragon, slammed this in there immediately. It would cost five mana for a 6-6 six, six that makes more dragons. That's fantastic. What do you guys think about it as the head of its own monocolored dragon travel deck? I think for six mana, it's a little expensive in mono-red, but I think the effect is is very powerful. And considering it's not just, you know, fire-breathing for herself, it's fire-breathing for all your dragons, uh, I think that is super nifty. And I we know that dragons are very popular. Casual players love them. Com, you know, competitive players love them. Everybody loves dragons. This one being a very powerful dragon, I think, I think this is going to make foils very expensive because I think it's going to be, you know, fairly popular, at least among the five monocolor commanders. I think Lathless might be the top. Yeah, I'd have to agree with that as well, actually, yeah. And and I could see her also being a top, being number one as the head of her own deck, in addition to being number one in other decks. We all mentioned, you know, things that she's good at. She's good in a Scion deck or a Nerd Dragon deck. But, you know, there's a lot of Kalia decks that are, like, just Kalia Dragons. And it's ETB, it's not cast. So when when your your dragon comes into play off the Kalia attack, she also makes a dragon token off that. So there's some decent synergy there. Um, if she's the head of your mono red dragon deck, that one in a red ability um, works with, uh, I just forgot the card's name from Cold Snap, where you add a red during your upkeep. Um, Ooh, Braid, Braid of, of Fire. Fire. So it works with Braid of Fire in that deck, too, because you can pump that during your upkeep 
with the Braid of Fire mana and have it spread to your dragons, assuming they're in play, and not get wasted. So there's a little bit of synergy there. I'm, I'm a fan of Braid of Fire, and I'm always looking for decks that can utilize it. So like it works nice there as a mono-red dragon commander. She doesn't have haste, so you're, it, it's a little bit tougher to maybe get commander damage in, but... Yeah, I think she's really, really you're, solid. You're also in red. Right. Yeah, you're yeah, also in true. red where haste is not hard. Yeah, that's true. So she's really yeah. solid. I like her in the deck, and I think she's interesting atop a deck. Uh, the one thing that I do want to mention about Lathless, and this is sort of a throwback to the Boros episode that we had where we were discussing how card advantage can sometimes appear in different ways than just putting cards into your hand, and Lathless does provide that. So... I think as the head of a mono-red dragon deck, it actually is more powerful than my eye first would tell me that it is. Because every time that you cast a card, you get two dragons instead of just one. And that is technically card advantage. So that is actually pretty pow powerful there. The thing that I especially like with it is playing Changelings. I'll cast a Torian Mauler and get a free 5-5 red dragon with flying. Yeah. That sounds really cool, too. I mean, the only thing better than casting Stormbreath Dragon or casting Scourge of the Throne is casting those two and getting a free 5-5 free, a, a free dragon with them. So, like, there's a yeah, lot... All of, of my dragons are broodmate. Right. Yeah, right. I mean, that's yeah. really, really cool. I'm waiting for all the old-school players to get all grumpy, like, oh, in my day, I had to cast my shipping dragon by itself, and it cost six <laughs> men on its own. But, like, look how far we've come. Like, Shiv and Dragon used to be just, like, unbeatable, and now we have, for the same mana cost, a 6-6 six -six that makes more Shiv and Dragons. Well, that's kind of that's a good point, though, about her. I mean, part of the problem with, you know, Mono Red Dragon Tribal, if you want to do that, is a lot of the dragons are pretty pricey, um, particularly the good ones. Well, this kind of mitigates that, because if you want to run a Dragon Whelp, or you want to run a Nalathony Dragon, or, like, one of the efficiently costed two or three drops, normally... You know, you feel kind of bad playing those real low-curve dragons because they don't give you a lot of bang for your buck in terms of how they affect the board state. That math is entirely different when you cast that two or three drop little dragon and it brings a 5-5 five -five dragon in and play with it. I like that a lot, actually. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, Lathless right. is sweet. Definitely. We've got one more commander, but to be honest, I don't think we'll spend a whole lot of time talking about her. That's Lena, the Selfless Champion, a 6-mana 3-3 three, three human knight that says when it enters the battlefield, you create a 1-1 one, one white soldier creature token for every non-token creature you already control, and you can sacrifice her to give creatures you control the power less than Lena indestructible until end of turn. Meh? So are you telling us that the, the mono-white legend is the weakest of the cycle in EDH? I know, it's so unprecedented. Mm -hmm. Like I, I love playing white cards in any deck in any format, but this is. I mean, Evangel Eva Evangel of was really good and limited, so she'll be good. Right, there. and that's the one that made you tokens equal to your devotion. <laughs> yeah. So this one makes you tokens equal to your non-tokens. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I'm. It just doesn't seem. I. The problem with it, I can't picture it at the head of the deck, but I can't even picture where it would go. It goes into your trade binder, and then you yeah. sell it to your LGS for a nickel. <laughs> you know, it might go in your black-white knight deck, because most knights are pretty low to the ground. They're pretty efficient. You could very easily you know, drop this with five knights in play and make a bunch of soldiers, and a lot of times you're probably running you know, Dictative Heliod or whatever in there to buff your guys up too. So I, I, I can imagine someone playing you know, Aravad knights or something. Or not, it's not Aravad. Who's the um, knight commander from Dominaria? Ariel. Ariel. I, I could see someone plugging this in their Ariel deck. Um, beyond that, though, I don't know where you'd run it. 
Yeah, definitely going to be the lowest statistic commander. For yes. sure. Yeah. And instead of just entering the battlefield, I wish it were when when Lena attacked, because that way you could at least not just be at a you know a one and done type effect. Because it's six mana, you're not going to have her at the end of head of her own deck. She's just too expensive in mono white, especially if you're trying to repeat that effect. Like it just. Yeah, it, and it, even the ability where yeah. you sacrifice her and creatures you control with power less than Lena's power gain indestructible, even that feels like an unnecessary. Like if you just let let you sacrifice her to give her creatures indestructible, that still wouldn't be great. Yeah, all as right. is, if she costs two mana less, I think she'd be all right. If she costs like if she was a three drop for a three three with that first ability, then I think she'd be really good. She reminds me a little bit of some of those old, like Fallen Empires era cards where. They got so scared by the power level of previous cards, they started like throwing unnecessary hindrances on the cards. Like, if you tap this thing, you can destroy target aura as long as its controller doesn't pay one mana, and you know the sun is up. Like, they threw unnecessary restrictions on a card just to like <laughs> limit the power. And this feels like that. There's like a bunch of barriers to hold her power back, and even without them, she wouldn't be that great. Alrighty, let's move on to some other cards. We've talked about some legendary creatures, but now let's talk about some legendary planeswalkers. We've got five of these to go through as well, so we'll try and speed on through them. We'll start with Vivian Reed, a five-mana green planeswalker with five loyalty. Her plus one says to look at the top four cards of your library. You can reveal the creature or land from among them and put it into your hand. Put the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. She's got also a minus three to destroy target artifact, enchantment, or creature with flying. And for minus eight, you get an emblem with creatures you control get plus two, plus two, and have vigilance, trample, and indestructible. What do you guys think of Vivian? I think Vivian's sweet. She's, it's just value top to bottom. Yeah, definitely an excellent green planeswalker. It's sort of classic, which I don't think is necessarily an insult. This is very, like, this is sort of what you should expect a green planeswalker to do. It's very quintessential, and it's nice to see. Yeah, I, I think Vivian replaces Nissa Vital Force as, like, my go-to mono green planeswalker i just think she does so much that you want to be doing and in, in dang near every green deck uh she's got some removal she's going to get generate card advantage in a green way it's not like you're drawing cards or brainstorming with jace whatever and then the ultimate is just a very good creature based ultimate yeah that indestructible is no joke if there was if there's one complaint i have about her it's that if you took her name and art off that card and just showed the abilities of someone like guess which mono green planeswalker this is You'd be like, oh, that's the new Nissa, or is it the new Garug? It's one of the two for sure. You definitely wouldn't. There's nothing from that those abilities to make you assume it's a new character, and that's maybe not a bad thing necessarily. But it just feels like she has three useful abilities that don't necessarily say anything about who she is as a character. Well, this yeah, next... and I, th I think I think if we're getting Vorthos as criticisms of a card, it, I think that means it's yeah, a pretty for good sure. card. Like that, that's a that's a you know, an unimportant criticism just in general. But looking at the next card where it's definitely that character while also being <laughs> right. really strong, I, I can't help but compare mm. the two. Go ahead and tell us about it, Dana. Well, the next one is a Tezzeret Artifice Master for three and two blue. His plus one is create a 1-1 one, one colorless stopper artifact creature token with flying. His zero is to draw a card, and if you control three or more artifacts, draw two cards instead. So you're going to be drawing two cards way more often than not. Mm -hmm. And his minus nine is you get an emblem with at the beginning of your end step, search your library for a permanent card and put it onto the battlefield, then shuffle your library. Definitely a master of creation right there. That's 
really sick, actually. He defends himself, and he goes up in loyalty to do it. He's a huge source of card advantage, and his ultimate is sort of like enduring ideal, only better. Right, it doesn't lock down anything else. You just get, hey, free omniscience from your library. Yeah, yeah. one like for as much as you know, we kind of nitpicked with Vivian saying it's just three generic, very good abilities. Tezzeret's kind of like, okay, create a thopter, cool. Draw some cards, very blue. And then the ultimate is just, holy crap, this is going to <laughs> win so many games. Yeah, as useful as yeah. Vivian is just generically, in your artifact deck, Tezzeret is a monster. Yeah. And I think, honestly, even outside of artifacts, he's really solid, too. Sure, I mean, in Commander, very frequently that, that zero to draw a card, let alone draw two, I mean, you're just going to accidentally pretty often have that soul ring and a signet and something else in play to draw two cards off that. I mean, it's just that's just going to happen sometimes. So even if it isn't a dedicated artifact deck, you may oftentimes have enough rocks in play just to draw two. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think Tezzeret's sweet. And like, I don't even play artifacts or blue, and I really like Tezzeret. Yeah, as we move on to check out some of these other Planeswalkers, we can also see that while Vivian was maybe a little generic, which again, I don't think is an insult, it's very classic yeah, green, no. and Tezzeret was a bit more niche, we've also got some niche coming on with Liliana and with Sarkhan. So Liliana, untouched by death, is a four-mana Planeswalker with foil loyalty. She's got a plus one to put the top three cards of your library into your graveyard. If at least one of them is a zombie, each opponent loses two life and you gain two life. Minus two, target creature gets minus X minus X until end of turn, where X is the number of zombies you control. And minus three, you may cast zombie cards from your graveyard this turn. Super ultra zombie planeswalker over here. And that minus three can be used the second she comes down. Yeah, absolutely. She starts with four loyalty. That's so weird but i mean we've discussed on our tribal episode that zombies are one of the most popular tribes in fact weren't they the most popular tribe of all time i believe they were yeah i think they were yeah so she's got a ton of places that she'll be going geese and Giralf and Grimgrin and regular ghoul color gisa and yeah there's a ton of places so to do you see Liana. for sure i i like this design too and i think we're going to see something similar in the next card but i really like the fact that this is telling you to play this in a zombie tribal tag now, I don't think we would want that with every Liliana we get or every Planeswalker we get, but I think the fact that this is so clearly designed for that one specific niche deck, I like that. It's it's, it's a change of pace, and it, it it lets the card be really strong in that deck while maybe not risking it being broken outside that framework. Definitely. And as you mentioned, we've also got another commander that is very tribal as well, and that's Sarkhan Fireblood. Matt, can you tell us about Sarkhan? Yeah, Sarkon the Crossfitter. Uh, <laughs> for the swole. record, his art, he has done so many push-ups lately since we last saw him on Tarkir. Um, but yeah, so Sarkon the Fireblood, uh, one and two red for three starting loyalty. Uh, it's plus one. You may discard a card. If you do, draw a card. Another plus one. Uh, add two mana in any combination of colors. Spend this mana only to cast dragon spells. And then minus seven is create... Four five five red dra red creature tokens with flying dragons. Yep, he's. I mean, that, that's pretty narrow. You want to run that in a dragon deck? Yeah, angles and dargons. <laughs> two mana in any combination of colors for a plus one. I love that he's got two plus one abilities. But I mean, yeah, Ur Dragon, Lathless, any dragon tribal deck. You're, of course, you're going to run Sarkin. Yeah, again, I like it. It's it's narrow because you're only running in that deck, but. There's room in this game for a few Planeswalkers that are really, really narrow, that are strong in their deck and not good anywhere else. I, I like it. I, I would want to see two or three of these in every set. 
but I, I'm cool with it in the core set, having a couple Planeswalkers that are just so specifically designed for a certain kind of deck. Right. This next Planeswalker, though, is a, a little more peculiar. We've seen a Johnny again, Adversary of Tyrants. Sorry, that's Adversary, isn't it? Ajani, Adversary of Tyrants. He's a 4-mana, four 4-loyalty four Planeswalker in white, with a plus 1 to put a plus 1 counter on each of up to 2 target creatures, a minus 2 to return target creature with converted mana cost 2 or less from your graveyard to the battlefield, and a minus 7, you get an emblem with, at the beginning of your end step, create 3 one, one white cat creature tokens with lifelink. He's a little weird. He does a lot of stuff, but it's, I feel a little scrambled with Ajani. This is a very different take on him. I don't like that his emblem is basically Elspeth, where you get the three tokens a turn. I think it's not a coincidence that it's Elspeth either. Uh, yeah, they did have a relationship in the lore, that's definitely true. It was very sad when a, a Johnny mentored Elspeth and then she went and died. Well, and, but... and we also got some art on a poster that was released a couple days ago showing Elspeth down in uh, whatever the hell is. Nick's. In, in Nick's holding the gold mask so like there's there's elspeth art out there for a future elspeth and i I feel, I feel like this might be a bit of a breadcrumb for a future storyline oh that certainly could be true I, I guess with the johnny i'm just a little disappointed in the ultimate usually when we see an ultimate for a planeswalker it's something breathtakingly awesome we saw tezzerets where you get a free card every turn we saw vivians where you get indestructible and plus two and vigilance and trample for all of your creatures even Liliana, her, quote, ultimate ability is a minus three, but it allows you to do something very efficiently, and that's to play cards out of your graveyard. And she's not trying to fool you with some, like, it's like, okay, I'm just going to be doing zombies. That's right. what I'm here to do. Whereas Ajani, he's making three cat tokens a turn, and that just sort of pales in comparison to what I feel like the other ultimate of the Planeswalkers are, you know? Especially it's especially it's seven mana, or not seven mana, but the, the ultimate is seven loyalty, and he starts at four, so it's it's going to be a few turns, and... It's gonna be it's gonna be a few turns, and he doesn't really protect himself very well on your way to those few turns. No. I mean, I guess he can bring back like a, a chum blocker, but that's for his minus two, and that's not gonna buy you a whole lot of time. So yeah, he's he's not great. <laughs> I, I like I'm gonna run him in, in my mono white planeswalker deck just because he's better than intro deck Gideon, but that's that's where that bar is. I don't know if you're gonna run him anywhere else. Cat deck, maybe? Right. Cat tribal? Because he makes yeah, cats? I, I just don't think he has a very clear home, and that's his biggest drawback. Yeah, I agree. On the whole, though, I'm more excited about these Planeswalkers than I am about a lot of the commanders that we've discussed so far. Is yeah. that mean of me? No. I, I don't I, think so. I, I mean, I, I really like Vivian. Like I said, I think I think Vivian's going to be my go-to. Any green deck, like that'll probably be in like that first draft that we always talk about of, of brewing a deck. I'll probably have Vivian if it's got green in it. I think that's quite fair. She's really solid. Let's take a look now to some of the other cards in the set, namely the reprints. We just want to linger really quickly on there. What we want to do for the set reviews, as always, is to try and discuss the cards that we think we'll see a whole lot of play, the ones that we expect will be the most popular on EDH Rec from the upcoming set. But we got to touch on some of these reprints as well, because there's some really, really stellar cards coming up here. We've got a reprint of Crucible of Worlds, for example, which is one of my pet cards. That's been needing a reprint for a long time. We've got a reprint of Scapeshift, which is an excellent card. I mentioned that I love Titania. Scapeshift is an excellent card for her, too. Matt, you had an outburst about Omniscience earlier. Also, like, there's some really awesome cards coming up in this set that we've seen before, but I'm happy to see them again. 
Yeah, this like this is why they needed core sets to come back so they can put these awesome cards in standard. Well, not necessarily in standard, but just reprint them. A lot of these cards are not going to break standard. Like no deck in standard right now, at least that could very well change is going to be playing omniscience. Like Crucible, Crucible of Worlds, maybe. I mean, they do have you know some of those sacrifice a desert type cards like Scavenger Grounds, but like some of these, I mean, they're not going to break standard by having Reliquary Tower in standard. So I think this is a very good demonstration, I guess, of, of, you know, what they can do with core sets and why, at least I don't think core sets ever really should have gone away. Yeah. I mean, if, if the core sets from here on out, and I believe we're slated to get one every year, if the core sets here on out do what this one is doing, where it throws us, you know, five interesting lore planeswalker or lower characters like the dragons and it throws us five new planeswalkers and it throws us five good reprints like this like if it does if the corsets do nothing but what this one has done up to this point that's exactly what you want from a corset and i'm happy with that absolutely but we've also got some other really awesome cards coming out here too such as detection tower this is a brand new card a land that can tap for colorless or you can pay one and tap it, and until end of turn, your opponents and creatures your opponents control with Hexproof can be the targets of spells and abilities you control as though they didn't have Hexproof. Brand new card, really weird, but I kind of like it. I think I like it more in theory, maybe, than I do in practice. Arcane Lighthouse more or less does the same thing, and that doesn't see that much play either. So I guess now we have a second option that's that doesn't hit Shroud, but maybe it does a gets around hex with a little bit more i just it's fine it's interesting and maybe in your meta like if you're playing in a meta where you're consistently dealing with a narset or consistently dealing with a euro or something because you know your friend has one deck and that's all they play then having the option to add a second one of these in your land slot is really 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 useful on average though i i think i don't know if it adds that much to the game that wasn't already there I, I think it's a fine card. I think this is more just a, a constructed 60 form or 60 card format plant than it was for us necessarily. Um, and I'm fine with that. I mean, that's just me, you know, loving 60 card formats too. Yeah. Arcane Lighthouse, like you said, already does this type of effect. But if, if you want one, you know, they always say, why won't you, you know, take both? Sure. Um, which is fine. I just, I don't think that, I mean, yes, if, if there's some people in your play group that tend to play some, you know, hard interact with commanders, this might be a good answer of getting a second one, but um, for the most part, I, I just don't think this card necessarily is, is for us. But one card I do think is is definitely for our format, just because you guys know how much I love five-mana rats. Uh, Cleansing Nova is sweet. Pepperidge Farm remembers when we <laughs> talked about five-mana rats on this, on this podcast. And Wizards, you know, obviously they love what I, you know, ask from them. They, they give us Muldrotha, Najila, and all those cool cards. So they gave us another five-mana wrath. Yeah, Cleansing Nova is three and two white and has two modes, and you choose one for sorcery, either destroy all creatures or destroy all artifacts and enchantments. So it's pretty much half of an austere command for one less mana, but it's still awesome. That is really good. <laughs> Not going to lie. Yeah, I mean, austere commands may be my favorite board wipe in the format, um, and this is a cheaper one that's slightly less flexible, which means it's still fantastic. The biggest problem this is going to have is there's so many good white board wipes nowadays. I mean, we just got Fade Retribution, which is almost always going to be a three-mana planar cleansing. We already had Austere Command. You know, we've already got things like Supreme Verdict or Merciless Eviction. So it's play pretty, of the game. Yeah, it, I mean, it's it's pretty tight. Right? Yeah, play <laughs> the game. Um, it's pretty tight for, for board wipes, but 
Man, I'm probably going to be putting this into most of my white decks, I would guess. Yeah, that flexibility is really fantastic. I think we said that as well on the Boros episode when we were talking about how sort of flexibility can, in a way, also provide you with a source of, quote, card advantage because it gives you more options. And this is one of those cards that I I feel like sometimes board wipes, for whatever reason, take a while to catch on. I mean, Blasphemous Act sat at like 50 cents forever and I didn't see people playing it. And all of a sudden, for whatever reason, people were like, oh my god, Blasphemous Act's a one-mana board wipe, I should run that. And it you know shot up to a three dollar card or four dollar card whatever it is now, you know Rift was Rift was dirt cheap for the first year or so it was out, so I, I feel like this is one of those cards that that is going to sit there in people's binders and everyone's going to you know kind of gloss over it and then all of a sudden in like three years people are like oh man why am I running Cleansing Nova in every single deck? So Dana, are you going to be guesting on Brainstorm Brewery and <laughs> yeah, this will be right. your pick yeah, of the right. week? The pick of the week is going to be Cleansing Nova. <laughs> no, but I, it's 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 a card X. I mean. I think you should grab a couple of these and stock them into your EDH staples binder, and I, I think you're going to find yourself putting this in your white decks when you build them, you know, kind of from here on out. It's just going to be that card that I'm, I'm going to be putting Austria Command on all my decks, and I'm going to be putting Cleansing Nova alongside it. So it's it's yeah, great. I, I, I have no qualms about saying categorically right now this will be the number one most played white card from Corset 2019. I, yeah, I yeah, don't yeah. think that you're wrong, yeah. I just like, yeah, one like we talked about with Boros, you know, we talked about how it's, you know, you can be creature heavy. Well, this lets you wipe the board still, but you keep your own creatures around. Like, just both of the modes are just great. So moving on from white, we've also got a pair of blue cards that I'm kind of tickled by. They're both clone effects in really weird ways. So one of them is Mirror Image, an uncommon three-mana shapeshifter that enters the battlefield as a copy of any creature you control. So it's a sort of a different take on clone Clone can be any creature, but mirror image can be just a creature you control, which, you know, I don't think sounds bad, actually. I don't mind copying my Consecrated Sphinx, if you know what I mean. There's also Metamorphic Alteration, an enchantment, rare, two-mana, aura, enchants a creature, and as it enters the battlefield, you choose a creature. The enchanted creature is a copy of that chosen creature. So it lets you kind of clone something that's already on the battlefield. You can either... If someone else has a Consecrated Sphinx, for example, you can turn your 1-1 Sapperling into a Consecrated Sphinx, or you can turn their Consecrated Sphinx into a 1-1 Sapperling. Yeah, of the two, I'm a fan of Metamorphic Alteration the most. I like those Deep Freeze, Imprisoned in the Moon kind of enchantments where you can just turn off somebody's commander entirely and force them to either sacrifice it or deal with the enchantment. It's, it's not as good as Tuck, but it's kind of the best long-term removal we currently have for commanders and this this one gives you the ability to do that whether it's you know i'm going to turn your commander into a zero one sapperling good luck with that but it has the flexibility to also let you turn that your zero one sapperling into someone's commander or that consecrated sphinx or whatever so it's a really good long-term removal option that you can also use offensively to make yourself something really strong i like it a lot yeah, I, I definitely agree that metamorphic alteration is way better. Mirror image, like I also wrote in in the the blue review, if you have an empty board and you top deck this, like mirror image is just blah. But metamorphic alteration, at least you top deck it. Like there's always going to be targets to do. Like you can you know turn somebody's commander into a land or elves, and that's pretty good. Like you guys talked about, you know, using it not just on your own creatures, but using it offensively as well. Um, I think that's something that a lot of players just they don't don't think of. They think of you know I'm gonna you know make my dude 
somebody else's best dude, which is great. It's a good way to level the playing field. It's very 75% if you want to get, you know, on, on the Jason Alt train. I think, yeah, I think it's, a, I think it's a fun card. I, I don't like mirror image as much, but they're both just people like clone effects just in general. So I yeah. think that's worth noting. Mirror image is fine. And like you said, people like clone effects and there's going to be decks that, that do want it. Um, I think it's interesting to talk, like Matt mentioned five mana board wipes. The reason you're paying five for your board wipe is because, you know, you've determined that paying that one extra mana over day of judgment is worth the extra thing you get. So like in Cleansing Nova's case, you're paying one additional mana to have the option to hit all artifacts and enchantments. I think that's pretty often if you're not playing in a super fast like CEDH level meta, it's worth having that one extra mana in the cost to have the option. Mirror Image is the kind of the opposite question. Is it worth paying one less on your clone to have the hindrance of being unable to clone other people's stuff? So is saving a mana worth losing flexibility? I would say it's probably not. It isn't to me, mm. but maybe it is to somebody else. Yeah, that's a really good evaluation. I really like that analysis. We've got a handful of other really interesting blue cards here too, including Nexus of Fate, a seven mana instant that lets you take an extra turn after this one. And if it would be put into a graveyard from anywhere, instead it is revealed and shuffled into its owner's library. That's not just when you cast it. It's if you would get milled, it goes back into your library. This is a... A really crazy mythic spell, and if I recall correctly, it's the Biobox promo? Yes, it is. So it isn't actually available in packs, but it definitely seems like a really powerful card. I think instant speed, take an extra turn, is just wild. Like, ugh. Yeah, you're, you're holding up mana for counter spells and you don't use them. You know, usually you want something to dump that into, and, you know, hey, yeah, Factor Fiction's pretty great. Well, this is way a way better thing to use your mana for if you don't need to counterspell something, taking an extra turn. That's exactly it. You can hold up counter magic, and if you don't end up needing to use that mana, you can take an extra turn instead. You can interrupt the flow of turns if you decide to go, like, you know, in between someone yep. else because it's at instant speed. But more importantly for me, if someone manages to draw, like, a ridiculous ton of cards or something like that, and all that they have left in their library is the card Nexus of Fate, well, then they can take infinite turns and they won't have any problems milling themselves out. You can actually probably plan your entire deck around that because Nexus of Fate prevents itself from being milled. So you can just sort of turn your entire library upside down. Nexus of Fate will still be there and then you'll never die because all you'll do is play Nexus of Fate, put it back on top of your library. Play Nexus of Fate, put it back on top of your library. That's a little obnoxious. You can also sneak this in when someone else is running some kind of an infinite and extra turn, turn loop. So like they will launch their, you know, take an extra turn after this spell during their main phase, presumably, because there's a sorcery speed, and they go to end their turn, okay, I'm going to take an extra turn, in which point they're going to start looping that. Well, you can interject, take your extra turn before they get theirs, and hopefully have a chance to kill them or do something to stop their loop from going off. Sorry, Matt, I thought you had to... I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> That's a good We have been running pretty long, sure. so we should probably uh, zoom through some of these others. That's fine. Uh, we have Psychic Corrosion, which I think is an interesting card in a mill deck. Two and a blue, and whenever you draw a card, each opponent puts the top two of theirs into their graveyard. That's really exciting, actually. That's a lot better than other cards that we've seen before. Yeah, it scales way better than uh, Patient Rebuilding, which is a, a rare in the set. Psychic Corrosion hits each opponent whenever you draw a card, yep. whereas Patient Rebuilding, it's only one person. It's only three cards per turn. Sure, you get to draw a couple cards off Patient Rebuilding, but whenever you do draw a card, Psychic Corrosion is going to hit them 
Psychic Corrosion is just a much better card. Mill decks are always popular. I think Patient Rebuilding, it could be my pick for what's going to be overplayed just because it's a rare card. It says Mill, or not Mill, but, you know, says you put stuff into their graveyard. It has Corrosion is just, it's just much better. It does have Bolas, <laughs> yeah. So like, And, like, Patient Rebuilding is going to look just incredible in foil. It's going to look incredible as a playmat. Yeah. yeah, I just don't think... I think Psychic Corrosion just being, you know... A cheaper card, a more effective card, it scales better. I think Corrosion is the one that you need to be playing instead of uh, Patient Rebuilding. Right. We've seen other cards sort of like Psychic Corrosion. Uh, Jace's Erasure and Sphinx's Tutelage are the ones that come to my mind, where when you draw cards, you mill people. And then there's the sort of inverse, the Patient Rebuilding, the five mana rare enchantment that says at the beginning of your upkeep, target opponent puts the top three cards of their library into their graveyard. Then you draw a card for each land card put into that graveyard this way. So it's sort of the opposite. You mill someone to draw cards, but... I don't know. I feel like Patient Rebuilding maybe isn't actually suited very well for a mill deck. It might just be sort of a a nice value draw some cards enchantment. I'm kind of with you, though, that it seems a little clunky in so doing. Like, it's a five mana enchantment. It's Sometimes it can miss, you know? like it's It doesn't do anything until your next upkeep, and even then it may not do anything. Yeah, it's. I like the idea of patient rebuilding, but I'm I'm not sure that it really belongs necessarily in a mill deck, and I'm not sure that decks that aren't running mill will make as much use of it as say, the classic Ristic study and other such things. So I'm I'm a little off on patient rebuilding as well, but I do like the psychic corrosion. We've got some other cards that have bolus on them, such as Apex of Power. Danny, you want to tell us about this bizarre red mythic sorcery thing? Apex of Power for seven and red, 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 so ten mana for a sorcery. That feels like a corset card. Yes, it does. Exile the top seven cards of your library. Until the end of turn, you may cast non-land cards exiled this way with the no mana you have left over after casting it. However, if this spell was cast from your hand, which it better have been, add 10 mana of any one color. So basically, assuming you have 10 mana, you can cast it, get your mana back, and then have the option to cast any of the top seven cards of your library with that mana. I'm I'm ambivalent, and I don't mean that I'm sort of like, I don't know, gray on this one, but like genuinely ambivalent as in I both love and hate this card. In a Mizzix deck, I think it really shines. That's a really great place for it, because you can reduce that seven generic mana cost and just play triple red for this apex of power, exile seven cards, and you get ten mana back. That sounds amazing. But I also, I, I hate that it only gives you mana of one color. Like, I, I, that restriction's a little annoying to me. It's a it's a ridiculous bomb in Mizzix, and I just don't even know if I would run it anywhere else. Yeah, that's probably fair, actually. <laughs> it's got the deck that it will definitely do a lot of work in. That's that's probably a fair assumption. And, he, and even then, I'm not sure Mizzix needs that. I mean, most Mizzix decks that are even remotely tuned at all are going to win way easier than figuring out how to cast this spell. Right. Outside of a Mizzix thing where you weren't reducing the cost, I don't know, just like you'll get 10 mana back, but when you exile 7 cards... Chances are, since we're playing EDH and we've got a whole bunch of big 10-mana spells like this one, the cards that you exile, I mean, it's nice that you can pick and choose from among all of them, but you've only got 10 mana of one color, so you've got to be playing a, a pretty strict style. Like, you're not going to be playing a multicolor deck for this, and they're probably, like, the mana costs on them are going to be, like, four and six and five, so you're probably only going to be able to cast, like, maybe two of the spells that you flip. Depends on how you build your deck. I don't know, it's just... I think it's got a place for sure, but it's probably not in any of the decks I myself will be building. I would tend to agree. 
So we've got one more card that has bolus art on it, and that's Frang Omnipotence. Matt, you want to tell us about this black sorcery thing that looks like people are dying and it's really sad and tragic? It looks very chaotic, yeah. So Frang Omnipotence is three and two black for a sorcery. Each player loses half their life, then discards half the cards in their hand, then sacrifices half the creatures they control, and you round up each time. From miles and miles away, I can hear Dean Guti perk up in excitement for his Masurek deck. Oh yeah, like it, it, it's kind of like a Torment of Hailfire that's just fixed at, at three mana, really. But granted, it also scales incredibly well. So if you have a tokens player like, you know, Reese the Redeemed that just makes a slew of tokens, ah, too bad. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it should be named some variant on Pox, I would think for sure. But yeah, it's if if it's your style, if you like those cards and you're already running them, this gives you another one. And if it isn't, and you already weren't running, you know, uh, pox or smallpox or something, you probably really don't care. Yeah, cutting everything in half doesn't exactly win you the game. I have nothing else to add to bring omnipotence. I do like the next card though, um, Runic Armasaur, for one and two green for a two five. Uh, whenever an opponent activates an ability of a creature or land that isn't a man ability, you may draw a card. Now that is a creature. That's my type of green creature. It's not It's not keeping people from playing the game. They can still do their thing, but you're just benefiting off of it. Like, I love that. And it's a 2-5 for 3 mana. Like, even then, like, it's just an oversized critter that, I mean, it's just going to draw you cards. Like, it's a very green thing. And Gaddock Teague hate bears. Henry, I'm sorry, but uh, our editor... <laughs> hates Gaddock Teague, and I love Gaddock Teague, so I'm going to talk about Gaddock Teague. Well, yeah, it, this is a perfect place, because I, I have a microphone right now, and Henry doesn't. So. <laughs> well, it's also, there's um, also yeah. the pickings for dinosaurs for your dinosaur travel deck are a little bit lean. This is a really good dinosaur for dinosaur deck. It's a 2-5 in a Doran deck, so it has abilities that are, like, that ability is always going to be useful. It's always going to draw you cards, and in addition to that, by being a 2-5, it, it's kind of relevant in Doran, and it's kind of relevant in your dinosaur tribal decks. So it's got homes in that way as well. So yeah, it, it's going to be in decks. There's just there's plenty of people that are going to want this really cool ability and then say, oh, it also works really well in this deck I'm running, so that's just gravy. Yeah, you play a runic armosaur, your opponent looks a little sadly at their maze of ith. Right. There's a handful of multicolored cards that I'm also really a fan of in this set. The first one that jumps to my mind is Poison Tip Archer, a 4-mana 2-3 elf archer with reach and death touch, and the ability whenever another creature dies, each opponent loses one life. This thing's pushed. This is like, I feel like Slimefoot players are immediately interested. Yeah, it's just a really good blood artist effect. Yeah, it's a blood artist that, you know, can stop fire from swinging through and basically stop anything from swinging through unless you are have indestructible because it's going to die. Efficiently costed, it's, it's just a useful card. Yeah, whenever any other creature dies, that I mean, heck, I might even put this into a Marin deck because I frequently just sacrifice a ton of creatures and then bring them all back. And it's each that's, opponent, not target opponent as well. Exactly. That's that's a lot of value right there. Each opponent effects are really, really powerful. Another multicolored card that caught my eye is Satyr Enchanter, a 3-mana 2-2 Satyr Druid that says whenever you cast an enchantment spell, draw a card. We've seen a whole bunch of Enchantress effects like this before, and this one definitely keeps pace with them. I mean, Enchantress is looking good. If your Enchantress has got green and white, which it probably does, and you're not playing this card, you're doing it wrong. Like, it just should be in your Enchantress deck, whether it's Euro, whether it's Sigarda, whether it's, um, you know, I've seen 
those are the two big ones, but there's a couple different variants. Um, the Dawnclad, uh, Crown of the Dawnclad, there's a couple different ones like that that people use for Enchantress. Um, Sol- uh, Solvala, the green-white one as well. Karametra, I mean, this should just be in your Enchantress deck, and if you're not playing it in there, you probably shouldn't be playing an Enchantress deck. So there's a whole bunch of cards that we just don't even have time to get to in the set, but let's all at least talk about one more. Some of the other stuff that we think might see a lot of play on EDH Rec, we'll see some high statistics for. What are some other standouts to you guys in this set? I really like Sarkin's Unsealing. I was reading that card uh, earlier today, and just every time I read it, it just seemed to get better. So it's an enchantment for three and a red. Whenever you cast a creature spell with power four, five, or six, Sarkin's Unsealing deals four damage to any target. Uh, then whenever you cast a creature spell with power seven or greater, Sarkin's Unsealing deals four damage to each opponent and each creature and planeswalker they control. And that's just a really good case of what we talked about with Boros, like everything's scaling and getting bigger and bigger. And I mean, if you're playing in any sort of red-green monsters or just, I mean, really a lot of red decks because red, I mean, red does well at playing dragons and all that kind of fun stuff. Um, you're just going to get incremental damage and it rewards you for playing out your game plan. I just think it scales really well. I think it's a good way just to give red decks some reach. And yeah, I think it's just a very good card. I think while mine would be, while it's, while it's no Rishkar's expertise in terms of the fact that you can run it in almost every green deck, I think if you're playing an artifact deck, unless it's an eggs type version, one of the machine is just going to be an absurdly efficient draw spell. There's so many times that you're going to look on your board and be like, well, I've got five different artifacts in play that cost anywhere from four to seven mana. I might as well draw, you know, five or six or seven cards with this four mana draw spell. I just think in an Artificer deck, plenty of times it's just going to be a bomb draw. Yeah, I do like that one a whole lot. Yeah, even if you just sit behind a Darksteel Citadel, or Darksteel Forge, I'm sorry. Like, oh darn, I dropped nine cards without trying. But I mean, even like worst case scenario, if you're running, you know, Darksteel Ingot or a Coalition Relic, like... I don't know, drawing three for four, if that's if that's your worst-case scenario, and that's probably going to be the worst-case scenario really, really often, that's still pretty good, and the, the ceiling is much, much higher. This reminds me, there's an older card from, I want to say Scourge, but I'm not sure. I think it's called Rush of Knowledge. It's a five-mana spell that draws your cards equal to the highest converted mana cost among permanents you control, but the difference between the five-mana and the four-mana I think is actually very important. The one with machine can only work really in artifact-based decks, but I mean, even then, if you're drawing cards based off of your Gilded Lotus or your Commander Sphere, that's really solid. But in a dedicated artifact deck, you're going to have stuff like Mirror Battlesphere and Darksteel Forge running around. Whereas the Rush of Knowledge, whenever I tried playing it in a a non-dedicated artifact deck or just like, I don't know, just any deck, really, it always felt a little weird. Paying five mana versus paying four mana, that's, for drawing cards, it felt like a very substantial difference. And I'm I'm, it's interesting to me that I'm so impressed by one with the machine, but I was so unimpressed with Rush of Knowledge. And I think that that mana cost is a really important factor. I think the difference between four and five is oftentimes a difference between allowing you to play one of the cards you drew and not being able to do it, I think. Exactly. With that said, there is a spell that I think is kind of interesting coming up here. That's Liliana's Contract. This is the one that I would kind of... I think we'll see a whole lot of play, not necessarily because it's fantastic, but it is certainly interesting. Liliana's Contract is a 5-mana enchantment in black that says when it enters the battlefield, you draw 4 cards and lose 4 life. Then, at the beginning of your upkeep, if you control 4 or more demons with different names, you win the game. I think it's really neat. This is a 5-mana draw spell, which I was just criticizing a second ago, but it's just sort of gravy, really. The thing that I like about it is that having that demon win condition clause might actually be easier than we think because we've seen a whole lot of 
different enchantments that can change creature types around. And that's what I think is going to happen with this particular spell here. We've got stuff like Xenograft and uh, Arcane Adaptation, the old enchantment Conspiracy, not from the Conspiracy draft sets, but the actual enchantment named Conspiracy. They all let you change all of the creature types of stuff in play, so you can make a deck that isn't full of actual demons, and then turn all of your regular tiny creatures into, quote, demons, and Liliana's Contract will win the game for you. Right. You can even run changelings in a deck like that. I think that this is secretly very powerful. Yeah, and it's not like we don't have Kalia that just specializes in cheating demons into play either. Right. And, and I think <laughs> yeah. even, if, even if it didn't draw you four cards, you would have people trying to run it and do that same cheat win with it. I think that it draws you cards on top of that is really, really useful. And it also makes it so, like, even if you happen to never see one of those Xenograph kind of cards in your hand, it's still not a terrible thing to cast for five mana to draw four cards. Yeah, it, it's not terrible. And the Rush of Knowledge is, is a slightly different thing there, too. I guess one of the things that was maybe unimpressive about it for me was because it did rely upon the stuff you already have in play, whereas that contract is just a solid regular on its own. I mean, frequently I had stuff in play for Rush of Knowledge, but it was often my tinier, like, mana rock stuff and not, like, an actual awesome thing. You know, some big spell that's going to draw me a bunch of stuff with Rush of Knowledge. Whereas in an artifact deck, I feel like the artifacts tend to be a bit more resilient for some reason. So that one with the machine sounds really excellent. The Rush of Knowledge, I don't know, it was lackluster for me, but this enchantment is just a very... You're not taking chances on it, and, and I do like that as well. I don't know, it's kind of weird to evaluate my own biases here, but I do feel like that demon enchantment is going to put in a, a lot more work than than I necessarily want it to, you know? So these are some cards that we're excited to talk about, we're excited to play with, we're excited to see, but there are some that we also want to challenge the stats on. In particular, I've got one card here that I think we'll see a bit too much play. The card I've chosen is Elvish Rejuvenator, a 3-mana 1-1 elf druid that says when it enters the battlefield, you look at the top 5 cards of your library, you can put a land card from among them onto the battlefield, tapped, put the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. From a game design perspective, I actually really like this card because it reduces the amount of needless shuffling that we need to do, but I've seen a lot of folks comparing it to Wood Elves or to Farhaven Elf, other 3-mana 1-1s that get you a land, and I'm just, I'm not sure that I quite agree with that comparison. Maybe this is better than I'm giving it credit for, but I don't know, it just, it feels like it might whiff a whole lot. And even in the instances where it doesn't necessarily whiff, where you look at the top five cards and you don't have a land, like, maybe you will have a land, but it just won't be one that helps you at that exact instant. It can get any land, which is awesome, that's really great. But that's not like Sylvan Scrying, that's not like Expedition Map. You kind of are stuck with what you get, and you're probably going to reveal one, maybe two lands off the top, and hopefully it's the one that you need at that moment. I don't know. Am I wrong about this one? What do you guys think of Elvish Rejuvenator? Because I feel like people are going to play this one more than it, than it like necessarily needs to be played. I don't love the card, but my only my only thing is I'm not even sure it's going to fool people into running it in the first place. Maybe it will, but there's nothing about it that makes me think people are going to want to try it and, and to be wrong in the first place. And I agree they would probably be wrong to, to be running it. I just don't know if it's going to maybe tempt anybody, but but maybe it will. I think it's fine. I mean, I, I think there's worse things you can be doing. Uh, Civic Wayfinder and stuff like that, like those all get, you know, a non-zero amount of play. I do appreciate, though, trying to, to find a way to get away from shuffling all the time because, you know, we've all sat at a table where somebody, you know, they, they'll play this and they'll they'll play Wood Elves, I guess, and shuffle their library and they'll, sh they'll spend, it, you know, a decent amount of time shuffling. Then they'll play their land for the turn and they'll fetch and shuffle again and then they'll brainstorm 
And so you have to wait on him. So just speeding up the game in general, I am always a fan of, and I will not not knock Wizards for trying this out as an alternative. Yeah, it's not a bad card, necessarily. And I guess the place that I could see it maybe doing the most work would be, for example, my Marin deck, because I'm constantly you know, reanimating creatures, and getting this effect multiple times is probably kind of nice. But even then, I just feel like I've got better options in this exact slot already. Dana, what's your challenging this death this week? My challenging this death is going to be for a card that is fantastic, Crucible of Worlds. And I think it's going to be overplayed. <gasps> and this is this is an observation I made when Damnation finally got reprinted. I think Damnation is a fantastic card as well, but I think people had wanted a Damnation reprint for so long, and we didn't get one, and the price kept scaling up that whole time, that people built Damnation up in their minds maybe a little bit as something that's better than a Black Wrath of God, and it's literally just a Black Wrath of God. So I remember seeing people when that Damnation reprint came out, you know, talking about, oh man, now I can finally get that Damnation I want. And I'm looking at them going, you already have, you already aren't running Wrath of God in that Orzhov deck. Why do you need a Damnation when you have the option to run one right now? Um, I think a similar thing is kind of going to happen here where Crucible has been built up because it's needed a reprint forever and the price has spiraled up as well. And people are going to crack one in their, you know, pre-release set and, go home and jam it into that Selesnia deck of theirs that has a windswept heath and one ghost quarter and absolutely no other lands that go in the graveyard or no other abilities to put lands in the graveyard. I think there's going to be a lot of people that put this Crucible in based on reputation and based on seeing someone else with a Crucible who has a full suite of fetch lands or has a Titania where they're sacking lands to a Zern Orb or who has you know, multiple things interact with it, and they're going to assume that it just magically does that in every deck, and it does not do that in every deck. I think that's really solid, actually. I have professed myself to be a necromancer. I love putting stuff from graveyards. I've run Crucible of Worlds, the one that I have. I've run it in my Mimeoplasm necromancy graveyard deck, and even then, sometimes it's been a dead card, actually. Sometimes I didn't actually end up needing it. It's a really valuable card. It's a really good card, but it wasn't a haymaker all of the time. So I can definitely see people, you know, worshiping it a little bit more than is exactly necessary. Yeah, it's definitely one of those cards where, like, the reputation kind of precedes itself. Uh, people think, oh my gosh, Crucible, like, it's sixty card or $60 card for a reason. I've got to play it when, yeah, maybe they don't really. I think, personally, I, the only deck I would probably play it in for sure is Angry Omnath. I would probably play it in Moldrotha because I play a lot of utility lands, and I'll play, so, you know, I'll traumatize myself, and then I just want to make sure I'm getting the right lands out. But those are probably the only only two decks that I have that I would play Crucible in. It's kind of interesting, the, the lesson that you mentioned. It was almost a little offhand there, Dana, but it is a really wise observation. We can have biases when we look at individual colors. So you mentioned someone's got a whole lot of clout over Damnation. It's really awesome, but they aren't already running Wrath of God in their Orzov deck. That's a thing that I actually ran into when I was building a Demir deck. I'm like, ah, Divination, I'd never run that. But the card Painful Lesson came out, a three-mana black sorcery that says target player draws two cards and loses two life. I looked at that card and was like, oh, that's not a terrible rate. Maybe I'd run that. And then I immediately had to backtrack and be like, wait, I'm not running Divination, which is a three-mana blue spell, also a sorcery that just naturally draws me two cards. What's going on there? Just like the restrictions that you get used to in certain colors can kind of, I don't know, alter the perception that you have of certain cards and how good they are when compared across color boundaries. So that's, that's just kind of funny there. 
And it, it, it's good to try and take away those biases for sure, because Damnation is not strictly better than Wrath of God. And I don't know, winding this all back, like Crucible of Worlds is not like strictly better, for example, than Ramanab Excavator. I mean, I suppose in some ways there are differences, of course, but like just making sure that we take account of our biases depending on cards that are very famous is sort of what I'm trying to get at. Yep, yeah, people sure. use the term strictly better very, very loosely, and they <laughs> probably shouldn't because, the, the yeah, saying that Crucible is strictly better than Ramanap Excavator, that, 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 that's not how the phrase works. That's not how that term works. <laughs> Yeah, they're, they're very different. And they're cool effects. They are really cool effects, yeah. but I can see people gunning for Crucible because it's famous rather than gunning for it because it belongs in their deck. Right. Matt, what's your challenge to stats this week? So I, I have a card that actually does belong in every green deck. Uh, <laughs> and I... <laughs> but no, but, but really, uh, I already you know sung the praises on this card a little bit, and I think that it's one that I think needs to be played a little bit more just because it does so much of what green you know, wants to be doing, but Vivian Reed, I, I still think, man, it's just, it does so much that you want to do. And, and I don't, I, I can't think of a deck that runs green that doesn't want any number of these effects. Maybe, you know, you're playing some weird like soul tide deck that doesn't play very many creatures or something like that. But even then, you know, you say you have a Sadisi and you're making a bunch of tokens that ultimate is going to push a lot of zombie tokens through to do a lot of damage. Yeah. I just, there, there's so much going on here that just, feeds into so many different game plans. You have removal, you dig, and you can you, even if you play it to find land drops until you ultimate, even then that is going to be very good and very powerful. I just, yeah, I, I, I can't stop gushing enough. Like if I, I love Nissa Vital Force. It was, like I said, it was one of my favorite green, green planeswalkers. It still is, but this has supplanted Nissa as my go-to green planeswalker. Matt has a crush. <laughs> I do. Dana, what do you think about Vivian? Those hazy eyes, and I just melted. <laughs> Dana, Dana, what are your thoughts about Vivian? Do you think Matt's right? Do you think Vivian's not going to see enough play? I, I'm torn. I, I think she's really, really useful, but I think she's useful in such a kind of generic way that I, I have a tough time saying if she's going to be over or underplayed because it, it's not a situation where I feel like people can underestimate those abilities but i don't know how you overestimate them either i, I don't know i i, I just I, I think that there's a couple green walkers that kind of do what she does already i think she's good and I'm, I'm never going to fault someone for putting her in a green deck and i'm never going to fault someone for not putting her in a green deck yeah i, I can see there's a lot of other green planeswalkers that sort of maybe do what she does as well but I can see Matt's argument, too, that if Vivian gets lost in the shuffle, that might be a bit of a crime. She, yeah. She's actually pretty solid. She's absolutely worth considering. Yeah. I, I don't think you, I think if you're just dismissing her, you should not do that. Yeah, I, I, Dana, I think your point about she's so generic that she doesn't stand out. Like, she doesn't do one set thing exceptional, and that keeps people, that keeps her fresh in people's minds. I think that's yeah. the big thing is, okay, well, she, yeah, that's good, I guess. That's good, I guess. It's not like one spectacular ability like Tezzeret's that, right. that you know that people talk about. It's it's all these things that are just very foundational pieces that you want to do in you know all those green decks. It's sure it's not something that's going to blow you away. You're not going to write you know write to your buddies and say, oh my goodness, blah blah blah. You know you, you will never believe the ability that they just put on a card. It's dang, this is very useful. Dang, this also is very useful. Man, that's going to take over a game eventually. So it's it's just. Yeah, she, I think she might get overlooked because she doesn't, you know, jump out of the page 
like some other commanders do. But I think that might be, you know, worth reminding people, man, this, this is just a lot of utility and it's just very foundational magic right there. Right. Three above average abilities are probably better than a single exceptional ability. I like that take. That's a good analysis too. Yeah, like what are your Tybalt's, ult- Tybalt's ultimate is fantastic, but his other two abilities are, are crap, and he's the worst planeswalker out there. Hey, 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 we don't talk <laughs> about Tybalt. <laughs> so one final thing. What are your guys' impressions of Corset 2019? I, I think the metric you have to remember is it's a Corset. You know, I, I think if you're comparing this to Dominaria, it's probably going to be a little disappointing maybe. Not a lot disappointing, but I think, you know, if you're comparing it to a uh, an expansion set like that, it's going to look... It's going to pale a little bit in comparison, but I think compared to the core sets we've received over the course of the last eight to ten years, it's outstanding. So by that metric, I like it a lot. I I am very glad they brought back core sets. I think it's, yeah, it's just fantastic. It's showing us why we need core sets because we can get some of these cards out that older formats, yes, they can break it, but they're not building for older formats necessarily. You know, like I said, people aren't going to be playing Omniscience readily in Standard right now. It's just a good avenue for older cards to get reprinted, get some new cards out there, play around, and, and you know, experiment a little bit. Like that, you can definitely tell just with the flavor. It's not a dedicated block set, but they still put a lot of flavor in there with all the you know Elder Dragons and exploring that. Um, I think they did a really good job overall, and I'm I'm excited to play it. Yeah, my first impressions of the set were actually a little lukewarm. I think I was spending a whole lot of time looking at things like Chromium or Palladium Wars, which I wasn't very excited about. There were some amazing cards like Arcades, I think is really fantastic. And I mentioned I do enjoy Gorklara and Lathless, I enjoy them too. But I kind of allowed you know my presuppositions about some of the other legendary creatures in the set that I was a little less enthused by to kind of dictate the way that I felt about the set as a whole. But while we were talking about this entire set, when we started looking at all the Planeswalkers, I was like, oh yeah, those are really good. When we talked about reprints for a moment, I was like, oh yeah, Death Baron's in this set, Omniscience is in this set, Scapeshift is in this set. We started talking about Cleansing Nova, I'm like, oh yeah, that's really cool too. Like, there have been a lot more cards that impressed me than I realized, and so maybe I think I, I was at the beginning of the show spending a little too much time talking, thinking, I guess, about the the legends, but there's some other stuff that's actually like in the meat of the set that is actually really rewarding. So my mood has definitely improved on it. That's for sure. I'm I'm getting a lot more excited the more I think about Core 2019. Well, good. I'm glad you finally saw the light that we did. <laughs> and I hope you're not too burned out about reviewing new sets because at this point the uh, next Commander set is like five weeks off, right around the corner. Absolutely. And when we get to that review. Well, I guess we're going to have to make a new bet because we all picked Arcady Sabbath for this one. We'll have to tune back in at that time to see if we were all right about Arcady Sabbath or if another commander, maybe the new Nicol Bolas, has eclipsed that one. Obviously, I mean, we've been talking for a long time, but there were a whole bunch of cards that we couldn't even mention because we didn't have time for it. There were tribal cards like Dragon's Horde and Valiant Knight and cool things like Open the Graves and Desecrated Tomb. Like, there's a whole bunch of cool cards in this set that we just didn't even have time for. So, listeners, let us know what cards we didn't talk about that you think we'll end up seeing a whole lot of play and that we'll end up having high statistics on EDH Rec. Let us know. We'd love to hear it. With that, I think we're going to call this episode to a close. I'd like to thank my co-hosts so much for joining me, and if any of our listeners would like to get in touch with you, where can they find you all? You can find me on Twitter, at Dana Roach, and you can listen to me weekly talk about Commander on another podcast, CMDR Central. 
You can find me on Twitter at Mathemus55. That's M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S. Um, and tweet at us uh, at the EDH RecCast Twitter handle. I'll be, yeah. I'll be manning that. And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter. As Matt mentioned, you can follow EDHREC and the EDHREC cast on Facebook and Twitter. We're actually doing a giveaway when EDHREC hits 5,000 likes and when the EDHREC cast gets 1,000 followers on Twitter. So head on over there, smash those like buttons, and you get a chance for a really cool prize. You can also contact us at EDHRECcast at gmail.com and find us on iTunes. And if you do, please consider leaving us a review to help other folks find the podcast. This podcast is posted every week on EDHREC's community content spotlight section, where we feature as many other content creators as we can. From Commander's Own, to Commander's Brew, to Commander Versus not to mention new articles published every day by our own fantastic team of writers. We'll be back at you next week with more data and insights, but until then, remember, EDH wreck your deck before you wreck your deck. It is just, uh, I, I am feeling a little, like, whew, I'm a bit exhausted. I just had a full meal. And that meal was Battlebond.